0: Well, one of the things we find, not just in the worship service, where it uh, goes from the, the the need for forgiveness into the exaltation, but uh, also in history, where the cross is the center of history, it's reversing of history, it's not a repeating of history. Uh, we see that in our own lives individually, where many times we have to go through the sorrows. Of feeling abandoned, the sorrows of, uh, of pain, disappointment, uh, even failures before the Lord uh, exalts us. And I want to read 1 Samuel 22, 1 Samuel chapter 22 and verses 1 through 5. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please, let my father and my mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold, depart, and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that uh, you would bless it, that you would cause us to grow in understanding of your word. And uh, we just ask for your presence and uh, uh, your anointing with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the psalms that David wrote in the cave of Adullam is Psalm 142. And in that psalm, you can sense the overwhelming discouragement that he was feeling. Now, let me read you one of the verses uh, in there. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. Now, I've titled today's sermon, When No One Cares. And I think a lot of you have had at least one time in your life when it sure felt like no one cared. I want to begin with a story that most of you have heard or read at least once. It's the story of Squanto. In 1605, Squanto was taken captive by uh, Captain George uh, Weymouth, Uh, was taught English, spent the next nine years in England where he met Captain John Smith. Smith promised to take him back to his people in Cape Cod, but through the treachery of Captain Thomas Hunt, Squanto and 19 other Patuxets were kidnapped and sold in Spain. Now, a few of those Indians were rescued by local uh, monks, including uh, Squanto. Uh, Squanto moved to England where he worked in the stables uh, of a man named John Slaney. Well, Slaney had pity on Squanto, promised to help him to return uh, to America. Uh, When he finally got there, he faced yet another heartbreak. Some disease had wiped out his entire Patuxent tribe. Uh, He was the last surviving Patuxent. Uh, Here was a man who was utterly alone, crying out to God, wondering why no one cared. Uh, You probably could not have felt more alone than he felt on that day. But God really did care for Squanto, just like He cared for David. Uh, God cared for him by rescuing him from his tribe's epidemic. Uh, I think if he had not been, if it had not been for that kidnapping, he probably would have died. Uh, God cared for Squanto by having the Spanish monk by him, uh, rather than one of the tyrannical slave owners. Uh, God cared for Squanto by converting him, preparing his soul for eternity. Uh, that would never have happened prior to the epidemic if he had not been kidnapped. God cared for Squanto in a series of providences that gave him skills and eventually led him to John Slaney. God cared for Squanto by providing the finances to get back to what would become Plymouth. But God also cared for the pilgrims who may very well have starved if it had not been for Squanto. Uh, Squanto became a friend of those pilgrims and stuck with them to his dying day. Uh, William Bradford records Squanto's deathbed testimony Of total faith in Jesus Christ now from hindsight and there's a lot more neat stuff in that story than I've given you but from hindsight we can examine a story like that and we can see so many amazing providences that we stand in awe at the way that God's hand rested upon Squanto he was with Squanto every step of the way and yet I'm sure there were times when the crushing loneliness made him feel that nobody cared He probably thought, where is God in all of this? And I think that's the way that it was with David. David faced the same kind of crushing loneliness when he was in the cave of Adullam. Let's start reading at verse 1. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now let's just focus on that word cave for a moment. Uh, That cave was dark and silent, and when you read through Psalm 142, which was written at that time that he was in this cave, uh, you can get the sense that David's own soul uh, was dark and damp and silent, just like that cave was. This was probably one of the most loneliest times of his life, and many of you have had your own caves of Adulam, uh, where you have felt that nobody cares. How do you survive that? And more importantly, how can you thrive uh, during those times like David thrived? First thing I want you to notice is, is that the text says that David did indeed escape. He had a past mercy from God. In Psalm 34, David thanks God for his past mercies. We saw last week one of the things that's very, very important in your times of darkness is to be engaged in times of thanksgiving. Now, you don't feel like thanking the Lord, but you do it by faith. And Psalm 34 is a wonderful psalm that helps depressed people to see light in the midst of darkness. Now, it is not at all diminishing the darkness or or, or 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 poo-pooing the idea that you're going through dark times. No, it's highlighting that fact, but it's words of faith that enable you to begin to see some light in the midst of that darkness and to get through that time. Psalm 142 is another um, Uh, psalm, and it, on the other hand, expresses uh, the crushing feelings of loneliness. And I think that, too, is a help. It's not just the psalms like Psalm 34. Psalm 142 helps people who are enormously discouraged because you realize this is inspired. God himself put this into his hymn book, which means God cares about people who are going through similar circumstances to me. God identifies with our pain, and that itself is a healing healing thing as well. In effect, that psalm is saying, Lord, I do praise you, I do worship you, even though I don't feel like it, but I'll have to be honest with you, Lord, I feel on the verge of tears almost every moment. And Lord, I feel like I am totally forsaken. Please help me get through this darkness. And you can see that side of the equation in Psalm 34, but you especially see it in Psalm 142. Now, we're going to be singing that uh, psalm later on after the, uh, after the sermon, but I do want to read the whole psalm right now with just a few brief comments, and I'm going to begin by reading the title. A contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. I cry out to the Lord with my voice, With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. Now, I want you to notice first that David does not allow his discouragement to make him give up, want to commit suicide, want to give up the faith, or anything like that. He does not run away from the Lord, he runs to the Lord. He cries to the Lord because he knows the Lord is the only answer. And so when you are in your cave of Adullam, I would urge you not to curl up in a ball and just wish that the world and the Lord and everybody would go away. What you need to do is cry out to Him. Verse 2, I pour out my complaint before Him. I declare before Him my trouble. It's okay to bring your complaints to the Lord so long as you're not grumbling and complaining against the Lord. And so long as you desire to glorify Him even in your pain. Now, David doesn't have a clue what's going on. He doesn't understand. But in verse 3, he reminds himself that God does. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. That's the supreme encouragement that God knows. He is never blindsided. He continues. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look. On my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. He's saying, Lord, they've taken everything else away, but they cannot take you away from me. You are my comfort. You are my refuge. I will never leave you. Uh, You know, the disciples one time, they were asked by Christ, will you leave too? Everybody else had left. And they said, Lord, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's not like they liked what was happening, but they knew they could not leave. They were committed to following the Lord. In verses 6 through 7, he says, Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Now that last verse especially was an acknowledgement by by David that he was going to be king. God had promised that he would be king, and the people would surround him and would uh, lift him up. And so what he's doing here is he is affirming the truth of God's word, even when it didn't feel like that word was true. Okay he's wrestling uh, with his emotions everything in him wants to lead him to doubt and despair and it's a prison house and he refuses to be in that prison and uh, so he's wrestling with his feelings and constantly coming back to God and when you are in your cave of adulam i'm not going to promise you that there is ever any quick fix for those horrible feelings that's all some people want fix my feelings i feel terrible uh, there's no guarantee that there is going to be a quick fix for those horrible feelings, but if you don't fight against those horrible feelings, they're just going to get worse. It will be a downward uh, spiral for you. And so what David does uh, in this place is he's wrestling with his feelings. He's constantly coming back to, to God, and he's doing it by affirming his faith, singing psalms to God. That's one of the reasons God has put those in the, in the, in the Bible, offering up his needs to him thanking him that god is sufficient for those needs and committing himself to obedience no matter what he's a model that we should do that and let me tell you even after you've done that maybe five ten minutes later you're going to have to be doing it all over again because your mind tends to go back to self-pity and you're going to have to say no i'm not going to feel sorry for myself i'm not going to give up you're going to constantly have to wrestle with those negative feelings But if you make these psalms a part of your soul, they will help you to get through the darkness. Another psalm, by the way, that you can add to your list that was probably written right at this time is Psalm uh, 27. And that psalm, too, expresses um, these feelings. I've been abandoned by everybody. And yet all of those psalms show that during this time of isolation, God was using the isolation to drive David closer to, and closer and closer to the lord psalm 27 says he shall hide me in his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me have you ever experienced fellowship with god in the secret of his tabernacle uh, i first learned the secret of his tabernacle after enormous times of um, it was ba- basically 3 years where I was uh, almost at the end of my rope. I, I just wished I could die and go to heaven. And yet I looked back at those times and I saw those were times where God taught me to make Him my sole uh, dependence. Uh, in this cave, um, David realized it's very easy to take God for granted when everything's going right. But when everything is going wrong, to learn to find fellowship intimacy with him is critical in fact he learned to lean on the lord and probably experience the reality of his presence far more there than when things had been going right here's what he told the lord in psalm 34 the lord is near to those who have a broken heart now we just assume not have the broken heart right and yet god uses those broken hearts those terrible experiences to make us realize lord you alone are our refuge He drives us to him. So before God allowed David to begin re-experiencing the sweetness of companionship, what he's doing is he's uh, making him learn the joy of intimacy with him. And in that cave, he definitely learned that. He said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. There is no substitution for intimacy with God. That's point number one. It's got to come first (laughs) before anything else. And once David learned that lesson, then David is privileged to have the Lord opening up the sweetness of fellowship with others. The first gift that God gave was the gift of a restored family. It's point number two. And the reason I call it a restored family is because uh, Psalm 27 indicates that um, there was abandonment. Uh, His father and his mother had abandoned him in that place. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But back to this verse 1. The second part says, So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now the last time in the first Samuel that we heard about his family, uh, his dad kind of had ignored him. His brother uh, uh, Eliab had uh, had harsh words with him, uh, was frustrated with uh, David. And they basically showed that they're sinners just like we are. Uh, and God was heating things up for the family so that they would come to a place where they really appreciated David. And David, of course, comes to the place where he really appreciates his family. Now, most commentators assume that what's going on here is that they're fleeing from Saul. In fact, Saul's probably confiscated uh, their property and is hunting them down because they're just as much of a threat as David is, uh, as long as David is alive at least. But it is wonderful when families can come together, when they can bless each other long before those hardships come, those uh, desperate times come. It is so easy to take our relatives for granted rather than working on those relationships. And I, I think uh, Rodney and Gary would agree with me. That if there is one thing at the end of our lives if we could look back on and say Lord has blessed our ministry in this church that would just thrill our souls as if there was multi-generational families where the people just love their families love being together Uh, this is the most fundamental unit of society and Satan does everything he can to destroy that unity within the family now later on we're going to be realizing who it is of his family that comes to him It's everybody It's not only his parents, but it's his uh, siblings. It's his nieces and nephews and his cousins. And some of them are going to play an important part uh, in this warfare. But we're talking about extended family here. Now, in America, it's almost a non-existent thing to have any time with your extended family. And yet the more the American church learns to value the covenant... In this full orb, not just the word covenant, but the full orb concept of covenant, the more they're going to value the extended family. And uh, in fact, the end of this week, we're getting together up in uh, Minnesota to spend time with our cousins and, and uh, nieces and nephews. And they just have a blast together. We do this once a year. We have other times we get together too, even though we're scattered. But we do this because we value we value the family. Now, of course, I deliberately began with the story of Squanto because some of you don't have the privilege of having closeness and family. You've tried. You've done everything you can. And some of you, as soon as you became believers, they just kind of stiff-armed you. They didn't want to have anything to do with you. And if that's the case, this may be a cross that you have to bear. You're not going to have the support of family. He lost all of his blood brothers and sisters, but Squanto had a spiritual family spiritual brothers and sisters and those brothers and sisters in christ began to come around david in verse 2 says and everyone who was in distress everyone who was in debt everyone who was discontented gathered to him makes for kind of an interesting church in the wilderness you know he is made up of stressed out people debtors discontented i think uh, david probably had a lot of counseling on his hands Uh, in in that church. And yet it became a wonderfully loyal church. And they became a wonderfully valiant militia. God delights in taking messed up lives and using them powerfully. Second part of verse 2. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Now some people think David should not have gathered a militia around him, especially when the king does not permit it. Uh, but I think that's nonsense. Uh, we're going to be seeing in later chapters that uh, a militia is just as fundamental a right as the right to own weapons. Because what's the good of having weapons if the neighbors aren't allowed to gather together to protect their property? And so we're going to be talking about that in the future. I could have talked about it here because it really is one of the key themes of this passage. This was the beginning of these brothers and sisters coming together together. Uh, as a, a, a band of brothers, a, 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 a militia, to uh, defend uh, David and to defend other people. They were very useful. But for today, I just want to comment on the importance of valuing the body of Christ, even though the body of Christ is made up of strange and wonderful people. Okay, uh, First Chronicles 12 uh, lists some of these people that came out. It lists the Gadites. A group of Gadites that says, quote, whose faces were like the faces of lions, unquote. That's not a compliment. (laughs) They were scary looking people, okay? And there were some other people that were kind of crazy in the head. Uh, Beniah would be an example. Uh, He was walking along the pathway with David and all of these other men. It was an incredibly snowy day. And they're bypassing this pit, hearing a lion roaring. And he goes over and looks into the pit. Now, most people would just walk on by. Oh, not Benaiah. He's up for a challenge any day. He, without even thinking, jumps down into that pit, grabs that lion, and kills him. Uh, Okay, so we have a lot of bold and courageous people, but they're a little bit crazy in the head sometimes. Let me give you another example. The same Benaiah. It says, he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. That'd be too easy to shoot this guy, and we've got a whole group of people around him, and that's no challenge. It's not even a challenge to go against him with a spear, so he just goes down with a stick and uh, takes this guy out. These are the kinds of people that were on David's side, uh, in this uh, militia, they were quite a motley crew, distressed people, people running from the tax collector, people running from the banks who had seized their properties, people who wanted venture, people who were just plain sick and tired of the way things were uh, in, in Israel. Now, it uses the word discontented, but there is such a thing as a holy discontentment, amen? And uh, these people had come to the place where they finally said, enough is enough. And I think we're getting to that place where there are people coming around in America saying, enough is enough. We're not going to put up with this kind of nonsense anymore. But what a wonderful picture these guys were of the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, What a wonderful picture of what it means to be loyal uh, to a good cause, to take risks and to be bold and courageous to advance the cause of Christ. These guys were an incredible encouragement to David. And of course, David was an incredible encouragement to them. They were a band of brothers, if you've ever seen that movie. And I think that that is a picture of what the church should be like. And so in this cave, David discovered first the value of intimacy with God. Second, renewed intimacy with his family fellowship with other hurting sinners, but there's a fourth thing that he learned to value at this time, and that is that he discovered the value of providentially placed unbelievers. Take a look at verse 3. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. Now, it doesn't leave God out of the discussion like a lot of Christians have uh, tended to do when they get into uh, secular politics, but he realized in his negotiations with this king that there is a value to be placed upon unbelievers made in the image of God, not covenanting with them, but working with them. And it's very easy for Christians to take such an absolutely purist view of, Of their relations with other people they won't have anything to do with unbelievers but david knew that unbelievers have certain levels of decency and human kindness that have been put there by god's common grace in fact i i know some unbelievers uh a whole lot nicer to hang around than some believers that i know Uh, david certainly experienced that here is professing believer saul who's so nasty to david that David finds it a whole lot easier to relate to the king of Moab than he does to the king of Israel. That ought not to be, and yet you find this down through history. How many times have I heard Christian businessmen tell me they would rather do business with a pagan because they have been ripped off so many times by Christians? That ought not to be, but sometimes it is. And I think it's worth noting that Jesus received better hospitality from the tax collectors and sinners than he did from the Pharisees. Okay, who was it that gave Jesus a drink on the cross? It was a Roman soldier. Who was it that fed and clothed Paul on Malta? Let me read that for you. It was a group of total idol-worshiping pagans. Acts 28, verse 2 says, And the natives showed us unusual kindness. And the word for unusual kindness is philanthropia. It means love for mankind. So the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. Verse 7 says, In that region there was an estate of the leading citizens of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. Verse 10 says, They also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So it's not just Christians who can be decent and kind. God's common grace extends way beyond the pale of the church. And so my admonition to you is to not be so overly righteous. By the way, that's a biblical term from Ecclesiastes. It means defining your righteousness beyond the scripture. Okay? Don't be so overly righteous That you won't shop at a pagan store or you won't be decent to a pagan police officer or invite your pagan neighbors over for beer and pizza or you won't uh, ask for help from a politician who's a pagan. This is not the last unbeliever that David either associated with or was kind to either. Now let's just apply this to politics. Even though there is a place for third party, you know, third parties, what what do you call them, third parties? Third parties third party position anyway, uh, in politics, and you guys all know that I've been a part of a a third party uh, for years in the past, I have always believed that we should not be so purist in our approach that we either think it's a sin to be involved in other political parties or we look down on others. You know, God calls people uh, in different times of their lives uh, to different kinds of work. Now it doesn't mean we have to like those political parties or hope that they'll exist for all time. After all, David in 2 Samuel eventually has to fight against Moab too. Okay, so it's not as if uh, we have to be uh, totally loyal to those, but I'm just saying an appreciation for common grace can make us realize God's sovereignty reaches out even into the unbelieving world and uses that for the advancement of his kingdom, and we can be a part of that process. Proverbs thirteen twenty two says that the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. But it's not just the wealth of the wicked, it's the technology of the wicked, whether it's Macintoshes or Windows. Okay? It's, the, uh, it's the goods of the wicked, even from a Kmart. Some people feel it's a sin to buy from Kmart. Now, I prefer not to shop there, but hey, uh, it's not a sin. Okay, and, and so we've got to be very careful that we, we, we apply this in a biblical way. The only things that the Scripture condemns is entering into covenant with unbelievers, whether that covenant is marriage covenant, business covenant, in other words, being unequally yoked and co-ownership, or nations covenanting with each other, a Christian with a non-Christian. Secondly, agreeing with the worldview of the unbelievers. Of course we're not supposed to do that. Thirdly, endorsing their goals. Fourthly, walking in their counsel. Psalm 2, well, going to public school would be walking in the council of the ungodly or in any way abandoning your commitment to Scripture. So that's off limits. But when it comes to politics, think of it this way. You might be very opposed in the elections to a mayor and you might even be convinced he is utterly unqualified for office, biblically, constitutionally, and in other ways. But once he gets elected in, it is not inconsistent at all to ask this guy to protect citizens including protect you know, children from abortion, or in other ways, uh, asking him to do what is his duty to do. I think that's exactly analogous to what's going on here. We do not live in a perfect world, but even an imperfect world can be used by God to advance his purposes. Maybe one more illustration. If you're out in the wilderness and have uh, run out of gas, I don't think any of you are going to say, oh, I'm not taking gas from an unbeliever. It's got to be a believer. I'm waiting, Lord, for the next car that comes along and offers gas. Uh, no, that would be ridiculous. And yet in some of our actions, the way we treat neighbors, the way we treat unbelievers, I think we're not being always totally biblical. So that, that's the primary uh, thing from that point. Now, I don't want to miss out the very important lesson that we should not neglect our aged parents, and especially since this is Father's Day. Now, let me read verses 3 and 4 for you once again. Then David went out from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please, let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now, David stands as a wonderful model on this issue of caring for elderly parents. For the next few years, David is going to be running from place to place, sometimes having to fight his way through tough situations. And his parents, who are already pretty elderly in chapter 17, they must be pretty frail right now. They can't go along uh, with him. So what is David to do? You know, he can't take him with him. But on the other hand, the Scripture indicates that They've got a responsibility to care for his parents. So this is about as close as you can get to what some loving children have done when they have placed their parents in godly good I mean in a good care facility. It may be an ungodly one, but it may be a good care facility. Not abandoning them, but caring for them remotely. And there are sometimes circumstances such as David's where Christians really don't have an option for their parents to to move in. Now you all know we've been modeling that we believe the ideal is for our elderly parents to move in with us when they can no longer be independent. Obviously my mother's been living with us for quite some time and uh, there may come a time when Kathy's parents may need to move uh, in with us. But what we're modeling as the ideal is not the only option that Scripture sets forward for us. If a parent is impossible to live with, you wouldn't want to have them in your home if they're constantly undermining everything that you are doing, right? If your parents have Alzheimer's and they're constantly trying to light the house on fire, you know, or or they're endangering your kids, it is not abandoning the faith to put them into a nursing home. Like some people think, you're abandoning the faith. Let me show you, let me just point out, you can visit your parents in the nursing home every day if you want, right? You don't have to abandon them. But here's what the scripture says is an abandonment of the faith, 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, in context, he indicates that those who have this responsibility, first of all, the immediate family. If there is no immediate family, it's the grandchildren. If there are no relatives, then the task falls upon the church to take care of those who uh, are elderly. And so, no doubt, what's going on here is David's family, they're brainstorming. We're we're maybe going to have to run from place to place. What in the world do we do with our aged parents? And they come up uh, with this plan uh, because they realize if the parents stayed in Israel, they could be killed, they could be taken captive, could be ransomed, something worse could happen to them. They can't come with them. And so, um, you know, it's just an odd situation. And some people believe actually things are a little bit worse than this. Let, Let me paint how bad the picture probably is. They believe that Psalm 27 and verse 10 might be a factor here. David said, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Now, the claim is that the father and the mother wanted nothing to do with David, perhaps because they were scared that Saul was going to come after them. Just maybe stay away, David. And he felt abandoned. The Hebrew word is very strong. It indicates that his parents had abandoned him, had forsaken him, had pushed him off. Now, we don't know if this psalm was written in the early part of this cave or if it was written before he came to this cave at some point. But it's clear that David had felt hurt by his parents. Again, maybe because they were afraid of being associated with him. And we don't know for sure why David was forsaken, but it clearly hurt. Now, here's the point. Even though he felt hurt by his parents, he felt a responsibility to his parents. Even though his parents had abandoned him, he refused to abandon his parents. Now, it may or may not have factored into how they took care of him. I doubt that. I think this was the only option that was open to him at this point. Maybe when he gets to Ziklag, there could be other options open. But the reason I bring this up is that people, it's not just on this issue, on a lot of issues, they assume if they're not doing what the Kaiser family is doing, that somehow we're going to look down on them, we're going to judge them. No you guys know that our view is that your conscience must be held captive by the scripture and the scripture alone and even if you interpret the scripture differently than us we want this to be something between you and the lord and on this issue we just say hey the bible gives some options that are out there it's flexible what we cannot be flexible on is abandoning our parents even when you have been abandoned you cannot totally abandon your parents The command to honor your father and your mother is a command that goes until the day that they die. And so David models for us love for his parents, respect for his parents, making sure his parents are financially taken care of, protecting his parents from the attacks of Saul, and any way providentially possible trying to provide for his parents. Now, are there exceptions for the rule? Yes. And we could talk about those, but I'm not, because I think we need to be, it'd be better to be overly honoring than underly honoring. The last thing that David learned to value was the presence of a minister of the word. And we have hints of that in the three Psalms that we looked at, especially Psalm 27. But I want you to look at verse 5 of our text. Now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now this direct revelation from God was a wonderful protection for David. And uh, uh, later God was going to warn him again, okay, flee from that place, flee from that place in Judah. And so God's revelation was designed for his protection. Now my focus here is not on the content of the message, but the fact that there was a man of God who was willing to minister the word into David's uh, life. David was not a loner. He hated home church in that cave, and he was so glad when the church came to him. Okay? Now, one of the things that David mourns for in those Psalms is that he has been alienated from God's people. He didn't have God's people around him. He's alienated from the temple, but it's not just the temple. That was not the only place people worshipped. There were synagogues scattered all over the land of Israel, and even outside the land of Israel, there were synagogues. And the Levites, the scribes, would teach God's Word. Prophets would bring new revelation, but they were men of God that were designed to minister to God's people, help them to grow up in all things. And so there, it should be an incredibly rare, rare thing when anybody is out from under the authority and the ministry of elders who preach God's word, you're depriving yourself of care. Now, military people know this. If you've ever been on a military tour, you know you hunger for good uh, preaching of the Word. It's one of the reasons why David established chaplains in the army, and we'll look at that in some future chapter. But in the U.S. military, it used to be, we, almost everywhere you went, you'd have good chaplains. Nowadays, it's hard to find, and we need to pray for our people who are deployed. Some of them just feel spiritually starved. Now, praise God, there's internet, you can download sermons, and there's a lot more resources than we had before. But do pray uh, for these guys. Uh, They learned to value ministers of the Word, even when those ministers brought messages that pinch, that rub, that pierce. But you know what? The elect of God want God's Word, no matter how uncomfortable that Word might be. So don't make God put you into a cave of a dulem before you value ministers of the word. Well, let me just wrap this all up. In this passage, David learned that God cared for him even when it sure didn't seem like it. He saw and and believed that God did that. Then God brought family together, showed how they cared for each other in ways that maybe they had not uh, realized. They had learned uh, to value the family perhaps more than they ever had. Then God brought a church into his life and a band of brothers who had gone through similar hurts that he had gone through. Brought an unbeliever who cared and parents and then finally a minister of the word. Now, each of those groups is going to care for David in a different way. But the point is they cared. They cared. This church has some hurting people who need your love and care. Um, on the other hand if you're one of those needy people say yeah 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 i need your help and care don't be a joy sucker who only takes 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 and never returns care be like david who yes received care from others but he cared for others as well it needs to be a two-way street you probably all remember the story of frank reed he was the the guy that was held hostage in a cell uh, in lebanon for four years from 1986 uh, to uh, 1990 and it was a miserable four years there were times where he was blindfolded for months at a time, never having that blindfold off of his uh, face. And uh, one time he was put into another room, and he sensed that there were other people there, but he didn't dare try to peek to see who was there, lest he be beaten. It took him three weeks before he got the courage up to peek and see who was there and discovered that uh, Terry Anderson and Tom Sutherland had been chained next to him. Now, although he was beaten and tormented, made ill, Reed said the most tormenting thing that he experienced was the feeling that nobody cared about his situation. In an interview with Time magazine, he said, Nothing I did mattered to anyone. I began to realize how withering it is to exist with not a single expression of caring around me. I learned one overriding fact. Caring is a powerful force. If no one cares, you are truly alone. Brothers and sisters, again, there are people who need your love, your care, your ministry in this congregation. Care for one another. And if you are one who just feels nobody's caring for me, I want you to read, maybe even memorize Psalms 27, 34, and 142. Make those a part of your soul and realize as you go through those psalms, God cares for you dearly. He loves you. His hand is upon your life. And what I would urge you to do is learn to press deeper and deeper into His care in your cave of Adullam. Amen.